Welcome to this episode of The Views from Down Under. I'm Alex Tan, uh, your host for the program. And today I'm joined with the full panel. Uh, uh, Nick uh, is back on board uh, after his vacation uh, <laughs> meal uh, in Christchurch. Uh, and our two newly minted PhDs here, uh, Orson Tan and, uh, uh, and June Espia, uh, joining us today from the Philippines, the two, the two new PhDs. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the Indonesian elections, the presidential elections, and the results of the presidential elections, as promised from our last episode. Uh, we are keen to talk a little bit about what the implications uh, to ASEAN relationship, Indonesia's place in the Indo-Pacific, Indonesia's own ambition uh, with regards to um, you know, uh, its own foreign affairs and how he sees it, it's, it sees itself in the international relations of the Asia-Pacific. And of course, uh, this time around, uh, we want to cap it off with an interesting news about Taylor Swift's concert in Singapore and the, and the hullabaloo that it, uh, that, uh, it generated uh, with regards to uh, inter-ASEAN fraternity, uh, so to speak. So without further ado, let's uh, dig into this topic of the um, general elections. It occurred in the February 14th. Uh, the official result is not out yet, but the uh, projections are already quite sure that Prabowo Subianto uh, won by a comfortable margin. Uh, so June, uh, why don't you uh, bring us into this uh, conversation? Yes, uh, pretty interesting times for Indonesia. I can just distinctly remember 10 years ago, a Prabowo presidency was once considered as the most serious threat to Indonesia's democratic institutions, and that Jokowi was supposedly your antidote. But here <laughs> we are now in 2024, <laughs> looking at you know what is you know just one proclamation short of a Prabowo presidency, and with Jokowi's controversial son as his vice president in the in that ticket. And um, not only are we looking at a really majority here that will probably approach over 60%. But you're looking at a landslide of 36 out of the 38 provinces, except wow. for uh, Aceh and West Sumatra, which was won by Baswedan. And if you look at the exit poll results, it's fascinating. In terms of the gender, age, income group, educational level, and religion, except for Muhammadiyah Islam people, everybody else went to to Prabowo. Um, the interesting thing is the leading party now in the legislature is Jokowi's old party, Indonesia Democratic oh. Party of Struggle, PIDP, which we know is headed by uh, Megawati Sukarno Putri. It's the daughter of uh, former Indonesian President uh, Sukarno. And uh, I'm quite interested what the coalitional dynamics are going to look like. Um, given that none of them might be approaching the 20% threshold age, mm -hmm. and you might be looking at maybe between eight to nine parties making up, maybe seven to eight, nine to nine parties making the the coalition for for by by the time this declared in October. It's really interesting to see though that uh, you know the names that you have just mentioned uh, kind of signals that dynastic politics and family politics 
is very much al alive in Indonesia, you know, uh, or is it, you uh, know, I mean, I just find it really interesting, you know, uh, in the way that you now have a coalition of traditional politicians with the supposed new politician in Jokowi, but now he's become, you know, part of the quote unquote cartel. I, I, I think we uh, want to tag on to what June was talking about in terms of the election results in the House of Representatives. So, uh, like June mentioned, you know, uh, despite the fact that Prabowo and Gibran has, have won the presidential ticket by a huge margin, it was really a runaway for them. Uh, the results in the House of Res Representatives are a bit closer. You've got a split, you know, the top one, two, three, four... Five parties are have about a seven percent difference between the first and the, the the top the fifth. It's a very even split, and it's quite symptomatic of how Indonesian politics has been for the past at least three elections. You got to you must remember that even though Jokowi was really popular and he led the PDIP to 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 victory in successive elections, his government in a sense has always been a broad coalition. Jokowi's aim has always been to take to 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 recruit as many minor parties as many of the 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 op opposition parties by basically buying buying them off with government posts. So the big question for me is what will Prabowo do in forming his cabinet? Because the latest news out of Indonesia at the moment is two very important ministers, the minister for finance and uh minister for finance, what's his name? Uh, Sri Mulyani, yeah. And then you have uh, Retno Masudi as well, who is the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Indonesia's top diplomat. And both of them do not like Prabowo. Because Prabowo served in Jokowi's cabinet as the defense minister. And when Prabowo went to the Shangri-La dialogue in Singapore last year, he threw, the, he threw both of them under the bus, blaming them for Indonesia's... In his speech, he blamed the two of them specifically for, for Indonesia's problems in dealing with ASEAN, dealing with the, the region. So, the question for Prabowo is, if, not, if these two are not going to be cabinet ministers, who's going to replace them? Sri Mulayani has been really, really successful as a finance minister. Uh, when news of his uh, potential resignation first surfaced, there was a huge sell-off of uh, Indonesian shares in the market. Uh, investors are not confident that Prabowo will be able to find somebody who can be the guiding hand to Indonesia's economy. Uh, I think Mulayani has served two different precedents and uh, Masudi as well you know Masudi is a really really top diplomat really good at you know packaging Indonesia Indonesia's image especially to the rest of ASEAN as a as a more open willing to collaborate rather than the old and you know the old image under Sukarno Suharto, where it used to be like Indonesia wants to be the the strong leader, and and we we will we will dictate what happens in the region. So that's the big question with coming out from this election, with the way the House of Representatives results have gone, is you know how does he manage 
all these different parties that are going to form his broad coalition and you know how's he going to divvy up all the ministerial posts and 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 who's he going to reward and what does that but i think that but but if you look at the if you look at, at as am i picking up from what you guys are saying though is that that uh, uh, the indonesian parliament has always been uh, in comparative politics term fragmented yep right so and the fragmentation index is quite quite serious yeah right so number one you have a high high rate of uh, uh partisan fragmentation uh number two the effective number of legislative parties are high really high. you know it's really quite high mm-hmm. so first question to you guys who are the indonesian experts uh here in the panel is that what is the election system used uh for the legislative elections because the uh the presidential election is like a two round Right. Yes. yes uh, two rounds. This this time around, because uh, he, uh, Prabowo got over fifty percent, there's no more runoff. So, what is that legislative right. election? Uh, the electoral rules used there. Right. Uh, first thing about Indonesia is they are a they have uh, supposedly a bicameral people's <laughs> consultative assembly, but the upper house, the Senate, has an advisory role. Yes. So the votes that really matter are those that the people the that you vote into the lower house, the representative council. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in the legislature, in the legislature, uh, both the Senate and the lower house, these are multi-member electoral districts that are voted through an open list system. And there's a 4% threshold that is set for parties to be represented in a DPR. Uh, although if you lose there, what parties would usually do is to run regionally. In the regional council so that they win the sufficient votes uh and then there they elect four senators that are from each of the provinces bringing the total to 100 and and uh, 52. in indonesia also i think they're saying they also have a gender quota that's oh. that's fairly high uh 30 of the registered candidates must be must be female and so you have two kinds of things going on um one is people need to choose a multi-member electoral districts in an open yep. list and then parties need to meet the the four percent threshold another thing as well is they have a really really young voting age yes. compared to most 17 and that brings the number up to around 200 million or so voters 225 wow. million this time around yes. yeah average yes. voting age this year was i think just under 24 years old average voter age. so when you look so if you look at the, the Indonesian political parties represented right now in the legislature, would you say that there is a pan-Indonesian political party there? I mean, do uh, are, are there political parties that draw mainly from the regions only and as opposed to having a, a, a Indonesia-wide uh, representation? If you look at, I think, the first one, two, three, four, five, six parties that are leading now in the 2024 elections, they all make sorts of claim about what a pan-Indonesia government should look like. And then the rest on the lower half of those that will probably get seats are regional and also religious. Uh, So so PIDP, the Democratic Struggle Party, is number one. These are followed by two military-linked parties. Uh, number two is Golkar, which is the former okay. party of Prabowo. Yeah. And the, mm, yep. the faction which he led, Jirindra, is now number three. So they might get something to close to, to 40%, and you might have 
close to 40% of the seats in the legislative as really linked to the Indonesian military. Both so in this case, in this case, when Orson, you were talking about that there could be difficulty for Prabowo informing almost a grand coalition type cabinet, if you yep. will. Uh, um, and and how is that different from prior precedents in Indonesia, with exception of Jokowi? Because Jokowi brings in a lot of uh, quote unquote mana, right? I mean, yeah. he brings a bit of uh, his popularity, his mana into into uh, and and it it seems like it is cool for the other Indonesian parties to be to be riding the coattail of Jokowi, right? Mm. Uh, but but what about the other presidents prior to Jokowi? I mean, didn't they face the same issue of trying to build a grand coalition, considering that party fragmentation in uh, in in Indonesia's assembly and also the high level of effective na- uh, effective number of uh, legislative parties. I think they've they've always faced the problem of you know having to form a rather broad coalition, especially drawing from the regional parties that that make it to the House of Representatives. You know they they have to to get them to get the those small number of seats just to firm up firm up their position. But the difference would be that Prabowo seems to be incredibly unpopular amongst his peers. If you think about, you know, Susilo Bangbang, uh, who was before Susilo Bangbang was Megawati. Megawati. Yeah, you know, they've, they've all been relatively established, uh, rub, rub shoulders, greased hands with, with, with their counterparts and everything. And it's always Prabowo who's, he's always given this image that he felt like he was the the odd man out at the fall of Su- that during the fall of Suharto's uh, regime. So at a- will 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 the fact that you have a vice president who is Jokowi's son aid in that? Uh, my it's smooth in it. Yeah, my not not in my, the my- not in the important positions. I feel. I feel like in the important positions where they need steady hands to to really guide the ship to 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 basically counter Prabowo's uh, more instinctive, reactive way of doing politics. You're gonna need people who are willing to to work with him, but they're not. You're not gonna get good ones. That's that's my my take. Jun, you were saying? Yeah. Uh, uh, my view on this is this is in fact uh, Jokowi's election. You know, this is really, really well played election on the part of Jokowi. Remember that four or five years back, he sought to change the constitution to allow for the uh, for the president to run a third term. That yeah. was, of course, defeated by popular protest and mm-hmm. some of even of his legislative allies. And so the next best option was, in fact, to introduce a proxy <laughs> that will allow him to let have a lot of say on how Indonesian politics is run. And the way I see it is really Prabowo now has two options. Either he chooses to allow Jokowi to keep his influence in his government, which will then allow him to have a broader coalition than he can form himself. Or the other option really is to 
isolate him in order to draw aggrieved parties to his camp that have already fallen off the Jokowi wagon. Um, the thing about Indonesian parties is the really sharp divides are the secular Islamic divides. Pretty much everybody else um, doesn't mind working have with ideological positions that can be quite blurred. Uh, and a lot of that has something to do with the shared vision of uh, Pakasila democracy. So mm -hmm. everybody says that, and it's it's a negotiating point between the political parties. So I think that if I were Prabowo now, it really is about, do I then allow Jokowi uh, significant influence in my picks so that it's easier to form government and maybe then position myself for the next election, which is in uh, 2029, or just right now, put his foot down and say, this is away. not going to be a proxy government mm -hmm. for the Widodos. I think that's a, that is a very interesting uh, strategic calculation that he has to face because um, not only the vice president is uh, uh, Jokowi's son, but the largest party in the parliament is also Jokowi's party. So he oh, would have to- He's not uh, Jokowi's party anymore. Parts. He's been kicked out. He's left. No, he's, he's, kicked out. he's left PDP, he's PDIP because he he can't. He was selected by Megawati to to be the face of the in the, the the PDIP because they hadn't groomed anybody to replace her, mm. and he was seen as this you know uh, up and coming you know out of left field selection that would be a fresh face and everything. So it was but a marriage a pro, of, marriage of convenience for him, basically. Yeah, yeah. but he's still, mm. he still, he obviously he wields, you know, uh, uh, influence in, 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 yeah. in many ways. So that's a very interesting uh, um, calculation that he would have to do. Otherwise, he might face a situation of a deadlock, mm -hmm. um, you know, first few years, which is hard for a president to do that. And then if he's, wanting to get re-election that would be a big issue what do you think of uh uh going forward as uh with regards to probo a probo presidency and asean relations where do you see that guys it's, it's quite interesting to to see how probo has in fact performed ever since jokowi appointed him as defense minister mm -hmm. i think that he comes across as Quite a mature statesman, if I would, if I were to to put it that way. In fact, I'd say that that defense minister appointment really allowed him to begin the project of kind of reinventing his image from this guy from the Soharto regime that had a really bad human rights record to a more mature statesman that's re ready to put forward uh, Indonesia's uh, strategic interest in in the region and in dealing with with great powers. And I think. Uh, I suspect that whoever is his pick for the defense minister in the foreign affairs post, I think Indonesia might be slightly more assertive now in in its playing a, a leadership role in in ASEAN than it was in the last ten years under under Jokowi, uh, just simply because of the the position that. Uh, Prabowo himself had taken on uh, a number of issues, including uh, what's happened in the Natuna Islands, for example, with the, the Chinese uh, fishing vessels. I think 
that that's a sampling of the kinds of, of positions that they will be taking uh, with regard to the uh, the specific sets of issues. I, I think the issue is that not all foreign policy is about defense and security. So the, the worry that we have is that Indonesia, Indonesia under Jokowi for the past two terms have been really good at cultivating their soft power, their cultural outreach, the, 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 the push, the persuasiveness that they, they, the Jokowi administration has to say that, you know, Indonesia wants to collaborate with whoever and partner with whoever and work together and not be, not come across as really aggressive, very assertive. Uh, you just think about the whole issue of the confrontasi and the naming of the the Indonesians, Indonesian Navy named two two of their vessels after the two commandos that uh, uh, died in the bombing of uh, McDonald House in Singapore, and Singapore complained about that. And then Jokowi came up and had a meeting with Lee Sien Long and they kind of like smoothed over it. You know, Indonesia says, yes, we recognize this, this, this. They never they didn't ap- apologize, but they also didn't just, you know, shove it down your throat and say, you've got to, you've got to accept it. The worry is that Prabowo doesn't have the same level of finesse when it comes to, to, to dealing with, with his counterparts in the region. He comes from a very nationalistic uh, background, believes in Indonesian supremacy in the region, believes that Indonesia should be the regional power. And, and, and you know, for all intents and purposes, we'll probably pursue that. Nick, you... Yeah, and just to pick up from Orson's point, in many respects, this is a historic opportunity for Prabowo to make his mark because... In fact, in our previous uh, episodes, when we've talked about Indonesia, the interesting theme that came up was that the reluctance of Indonesia to actually step up for various reasons uh, in the kind of post-Suharto era. And so, ironically, um, even though Provo is not seen as this foreign uh, foreign policy wonk or guru or whatever, this might actually be the exact area where he can stake out a position that you know could leave a mark uh, so we'll just have to kind of track this and see how it develops because this this would have a lot of implications for ASEAN also for um, more broadly Indo-Pacific security if he were to really be able to appoint a team that would develop a more activist foreign policy for Indonesia so let's let's see how this goes yeah the the the, the issue then is it's really quite uh a different uh, juxtaposition uh, based on what Orson is trying to say. At one point, we're in uh, an activist role that is nationalistic, kind of Indonesia first type role might rub the wrong way on the other members of uh, of ASEAN, and uh, and it could, you know, uh, in a way also be quite contentious with regards to how ASEAN moves and how ASEAN you know, deals with consensus and, you know, going forward, you know, do you see any changes? Uh, let's, let's break this down a little bit further. Uh, you know, the two significant actors in this region that is structuring 
international relations all over the place. Uh, how do you see, you know, Indonesia-China relations going forward under a Prabowo presidency? And then I'll ask the next question of how you see Indonesia-US relation going forward under a Prabowo uh, presidency slash going through the next set of American elections happening as well. So let's start with the uh, PRC Indonesia relationship. Where where do you guys see it going? I I don't think it's going anyway. to change. I I the the fact remains that Prabowo needs Chinese money, whether it's the BRI or or foreign investment, to come in to support the infrastructure projects that the Jokowi government has already put in place. They still plan to go ahead with the move of the capital from Jakarta to Nusantara, you know, and and that's gonna take up billions and billions of dollars, and and there's just no capital locally in Indonesia to support all these all these projects. So I mean, when you have a country of seven thousand islands, you you you're gonna need the money what to to help you. You know whether it's from the U.S. or China, so he can't he can't afford to rock the boat. What I foresee is he will do he will follow. I guess in that sense he will follow Jokowi's line where he will court China for his money, but then send send his defense his military and his minister for defense to go and deepen relationship between the Indonesian Navy and the American Navy. Yeah, uh, June, uh, Nick. Uh, yeah. the, the interesting points about China Indonesia relations is that uh, we now know that China is Indonesia's largest trading partner and its third largest uh, foreign investor. And as Orson has said, because of the lack of domestic capital, a lot of the major infrastructure that makes trade possible across how many islands now? 15,000 or so, really is Chinese capital. But so Indonesia lately has had to deal with the very thorny problem that they hope they didn't have to deal with. And that is, in fact, the influx of Chinese workers into, into Indonesia. And uh, this has added now to uh, some of the anti-Chinese sentiment that has been uh, growing in Indonesia for quite a while, even though before the influx of these workers, Indonesia already has had a sizable ethnic Chinese uh, population mm. uh, that's found found throughout the the island. So uh, I came across a policy document this morning on China in Indonesia relations, and in fact the the heading says "handle with care," <laughs> right? And I think, and I think, and I think this is the position that there are they are going to be yeah, to be taking. Yeah. If I were if I were Prabowo, um, a lot of this has a lot to do really with making sure that the capital for the major infrastructure projects are coming. Uh, we know, of course, that they're establishing a new capital. Yep. Uh, some of that really is 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 was is, is made possible because of uh, Chinese investments in that area. It's clearing out that forest to, to establish a whole new city is a major undertaking. Yeah, Nick and then Neil. Speak, wait, Nick and speaking, yeah. speaking of the ethnic Chinese, it was important to point out that it's very surprising to see the Indonesian Chinese vote in such large numbers for Prabowo, given the history of Prabowo in the the nineteen ninety seven ninety eight riots, and the the you know there was rumors of him leading his squads out there to 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 take part in 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 the racial killings and everything, 
and now because you have rising Islamization, you know the rising threat of Anias and 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 all the Islam Islamist conservatives, then you, the Chinese just want to flock to old man Prabowo mm-hmm. who has his hands dyed in their blood. Mm-hmm. Nick, yeah, um, I was actually thinking of using the concept of balancing to try and understand uh, Indonesian policy vis-a-vis U.S. and China, but and that might go so far, but. Actually, I think a more uh, straightforward one might be trying to have your cake and eat it too, which is, you know, <laughs> trading with China and and like uh, was mentioned here, you know, uh, doubling down and saying that the United States makes a positive contribution to the region, increasing defense cooperation. And that would be possibly the best route forward for Indonesia, given the political economy aspect, which has been emphasized here. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be that different from many other states in the region. So it's not yeah. as if taking a very yeah. different position. You know? Yeah, I think Singapore does that. You yeah, know, Thailand right. does that in a lot of ways. So yeah. it's, 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 quite a, it's quite prevalent in Southeast Asia, uh, considering that uh, these two large powers do structures the relationship uh, uh, of what, you know, in other words, the course of actions of these small nation states in ASEAN. So... Yeah. So, uh, Neil? Uh... Well, on, on the point of where Indonesia stands in relation to the US and China, um, one of the things that struck out to me, certainly, as an outsider looking into the election as was progressing, was that uh, while Prabowo did talk a lot about continuing Jokowi's economic legacy, particularly in relation to infrastructure, he also spoke about trying to raise Indonesia's growth GDP to beyond 7%, or in some cases, he even said double-digit double growth was possible primarily on the bank of these infrastructure projects for which he certainly needs the money coming in from China, but also the focus being on nickel, which was, and, and you know, Indonesia's got the largest deposits of nickel. China's also made significant uh, investments in those nickel deposits. And Indonesia is trying to get its um, EV industry up and going. Currently, its exports of EVs are quite low compared to Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, its other local competitors, particularly to the US. Mm-hmm. And in an environment where you certainly need capital coming in from overseas, which is being provided by China, and with the reluctance currently in the US in relation to trade and certainly free trade to a certain extent, I think I certainly would agree with Nick in this instance that um, economically, like many other middle powers in the region, Indonesia, I suspect, will certainly carry on leaning towards China. But doubling down more towards the US on this, mm-hmm. on, 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 as far as defense is concerned. Uh, but the political economy aspect, and particularly China's role in it, as far as Indonesia is concerned, was something that I found incredibly fascinating in this instance. Any change in uh, U- U.S.-Indonesia relations, guys? Well, the United Same States are definitely going to be tr- doubling down to try and get the Indonesians on their side. Because the United States doesn't have a territorial dispute in the South China Sea with uh, Indonesia, but China does. Mm. Mm. So the Americans are going to leverage that. And particularly if Trump gets in. I mean, we don't know, but I, I just, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. But, um, you know, the Americans are definitely going to use that angle. I, I can't see them not, you know, trying to actually get the Indonesia on site. Whether they succeed or not is another thing. Uh, what about uh, the situation, Indonesian-Australian relation? How do you guys see that? 
Well, Albanese was the first leader. Who was, or, or, well, he claimed to be the first leader to congratulate uh, Prabowo. And uh, it, let, let's remember, it wasn't so long ago that Prabowo was banned from entering America and Australia. So yeah. I think we've seen a repeat telecast of a film which has played out well in the Indo-Pacific before of a, a nationalist authoritarian leader rehabilitating his image and being able to, to sort of go back to the US and, and, and yeah. Australia. Oh, that is exactly what struck my mind when I was reading about this. And I said, oh, golly, the, 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 the two big um, Indo-Pacific players, India and Indonesia, now have a leader with uh, many characteristics in common. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know, throw out values, right? Yep. You know, I... throw out values. You know, I mean, the message about this is all about democratic uh, front lines and democracy stand together to fight whatever, you know, it, it that that is difficult sell in 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 Southeast Asia, mm. even Indonesia is doubtful. Vietnam, you know, one of yeah. these days is really really doubtful as well. I think I think the Indonesian Australian relationship is uh, to watch for because there's lots of issues there, and mm-hmm. and as we all know, you know, uh, Australia invests a lot and pays of attention mm-hmm. on that northern part uh, because Indonesia is such a large neighbor. It has mm-hmm. issues in 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 the west, uh, 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 sorry, the eastern side of it with Papua and all Papua. of that. So, yeah. uh, quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of things to say. I, 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 I think actually, I think actually that the the whole Australia Indonesia relationship has been trending upwards since about 2017, 2018, where they, yeah. where where we. Where the focus then, when the focus in Southeast Asia started to turn to to the South China Sea and and China's actions and all that, it's sort of the sense came that Australia and Indonesia had some sort of like mutual understanding that you know we are the two you know big brothers of the of our respective regions and we want to 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 act that way. So Indonesia projects upwards into Southeast Asia, Australia projects into the South Pacific and. You know, they, these are our fees, you know, and that's all. But I think in, in, a, in a way, though, you, you, you uh, again, that, that trend up, uh, in a way, is quite collinear. <laughs> it's multicollinear with the fact that it's under Jokowi. Mm. Yes. So, yes. And, and, and we're kind of looking at how does Prabowo deal with this, with all the baggage he has, right? So, Nick? Yeah, and even the recent ASEAN Track 2 conference that I attended in Jakarta is, is co-hosted by Indonesia and uh, Australia. Australia, yeah. Mm. You know? yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, they, that's why Australia has this large Indonesian language programs, right? Yeah. yeah. They're really quite interested in that. Yeah. Colombo plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Colombo. we were talking. We, uh, by the way, I, I want to segue to the next uh, to the next topic here because we're talking about Indonesia and ASEAN and neighbors and all of that stuff. This uh, this one is a. Should I say lighthearted? But uh, 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 BBC reported this and some bad blood. Uh, bad blood about what? This is the interesting part. Taylor Swift concerts. My gosh, you know. I mean, we're talking about Swiftonomics and Swiftopolitics, and and you know the fact that uh, the six concerts that occurred in uh, in uh, that is uh, occurring in uh, in in Singapore has a lot to do apparently with uh, a subsidy that was provided to to the Taylor Swift uh, management company to have exclusive six concerts in 
in Singapore. The interesting thing is, is that this news was reported by the Thai Prime Minister. Uh, came to light by the Thai Prime Minister first. And then secondly, the uh, was it the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee of the Philippine Senate saying that this is not what neighbors do? Yes. And uh, so two things happening here. You know, I mean, uh, mercantilistic economic policies uh, coupled with... Uh, you know, the fact that, uh, uh, how should I say, beggar die neighbor policies <laughs> shows that realism is very much alive in, in, yeah. in, in ASEAN. But it also kind of talk about ASEAN unity at a, at a very, uh, how should I say this, uh, you have to thread it very lightly, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, if I may just say something in a humorous way, this may not be what neighbors do, but this is what capitalist developmental states do, you know. <laughs> <That's> a <true>. la, <laughs> <Thomas> <laughs> <Austin>. <laughs> so, you know, Singapore is, um, is a classic capitalist developmental state, and this is the type of behavior you'd expect to see, albeit in the entertainment realm, right? <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and this is in industrial policy in action. Yes. Right? Yep. I, yes. I, Absolutely I, industrial policy in action. I, I must point out that it yeah. it's not surprising that Singapore is giving grants to, for, to get entertainers to come and perform and do their concerts in, in Singapore because they got this big white elephant called the National Stadium, the Singapore Sports Hub that was built for <laughs> $1.35 billion and they can barely hold any sporting events. I think like the only time they sell out the stadium is that when you've got Manchester United coming down during for summer 12 to play a friendly against, I don't know, Liverpool or whoever it is. And that's when, when Singaporeans turn out, you know, on mass to, to go and support. If not, it's a it's a white elephant. They the government had to take back possession of the stadium from the the private company last year because they were the, the company was making a loss and they couldn't fill up the dates. And then suddenly, sorry, twenty twenty two, not last year. Still living in twenty twenty three. Uh, so in twenty twenty two, the government took took back possession of the stadium, and then within a year, they've managed to fill up the slate. You know, Copley played for, I think, was it seven or eight nights? Taylor Swift for six nights. You've got like Ed Sheeran and mm. I don't know, everybody's going to play in Singapore now. And for the first time, I think the the white elephant that's the sports hub is actually going to turn over some money and make some profit. Yeah, well, that's a, that's, well, you know, actually, hey, that, that absolutely is a, is a, is a way capitalist development mm. will act, right? Yeah. I mean, mm. and I, I just, yep. I just find it clearly quite interesting when I was, uh, reading the BBC report and the Straits Times report, you know, the BBC kind of emphasize on one side of the debate and the Straits Times one is more like, you know what? Hey, we can do it. Uh, the Philippines and Thailand doesn't have those facilities. So, hey, we'll do it, you know, if, you know, and because we have the facility, that's why we were able to attract, you know, big names to come and uh, come and have a concert. Uh, and I heard that uh, really, really busy. Uh, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, Swifties are traveling from the Philippines, uh, and and I heard I heard I also heard that it has one of the uh, the largest fan base of Taylor Swift is actually in the Philippines with lots of download, the yes. highest download. Am, yes. am I am I right? The highest download on Spotify on Taylor Swift music is in the Philippines. Yes, that's that's true. Uh, we do we do have a venue though, but it's a uh, 
a religious one. There's a big stadium that's owned by a major religious group, and just everybody, everybody just said we're not gonna do a Taylor Swift concert in there, are we? <laughs> and so uh, that, that kind of killed it for the Philippines. It's certainly it's great if you can afford to subsidize upwards of two million dollars for somebody else to hold a concert. That all boils down to it, isn't it? Two million dollars, two million dollars per show. Yes, wow. yes. So that brings it to around twelve something or so. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you know, I mean, if from from the business end, you know, if you mm. if you're reporting it as a business end, this is a very slick operation, you know, that was yeah. able to, uh, to to sign this and and all of that. So from pure business, it is that. But when you politicize it, it sounds a little different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I know, this is an appropriate point to actually look at the political political aspect of sports within ASEAN. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I was growing up in Singapore in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, there was a time when the national stadium was packed on a regular basis because the Malaysia Cup soccer competition occurred. And this was between Singapore and the Malaysian states. Mm. And I remember going as a teenager and a kid to watch packed out national stadium games, like 70, 80,000 packed oh because Selangor was playing with Singapore or, you know, federal territory and so forth. And there was no need for any government intervention yes. um, to, to have any, uh, you know, performances by any uh, like BGs or whatever at the time. <laughs> you know? Because you could pack out the stadium with, with a, a local game with one of the Malaysian states. Yeah. So well, it's, it's yeah, you're right. But the interesting thing for the Philippines, for example, is that in Singapore and Malaysia, at least, uh, uh, football is a big sport. You know, mm. in the Philippines, it's basketball. Mm. You know, and and for a Taylor Swift concert, it creates a problem because they they need the the, 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 the size of the football. Yeah, field. yeah. You know, they need yeah. the football field, which the Philippines, yeah. you know, don't did not do not really invest in football field. Philippines is a basketball crazy country. You know, and but 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 Singapore and most of Southeast Asia actually are football crazy countries. Yeah, you know, I I think there there are lots of uh, Manchester United fan base and Liverpool fan base mm -hmm. and Arsenal fan base, yeah, uh, uh, in uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, but in in the Philippines, it's Los Angeles Lakers and Golden State Warriors. <laughs> you know, it's a totally different. So you know when you. This is path dependent in a way, path dependent, you know, because it's path dependent because the Philippines was a former American colony. Basketball is it, and the rest of it, you know, is European, right? Mm. So Indonesia is Dutch, you know, uh, Vietnam is France, and you know, Singapore is ex British colony. So the influence of football uh, made it the path dependent that when you built something, you built your stadium. And you know, I mean, can't blame can't blame T Taylor Swift going there. You know, they you guys do. You know, Singapore does have good facility, really. Yeah, yeah it's not difficult to attract, uh, you know, uh, events to go there. And, and you're not and you're not gonna face blowback for events coming in, like when Coplay announced that they were gonna play in Kuala Lumpur. On yes. uh, the Prime Minister Anwar Anwar Ibrahim uh, tweet, tweeted about it. And then there was a huge blowback from the religious Muslims saying that he is promoting uh, haram activities and trying to yeah. pollute the minds of their youngsters and everything. And they don't want Coplay to come. And, you know, if you're the Malaysian Prime Minister, you must think like, oh my God. 
I, I still find uh, one thing that's really interesting, though, to be on on these type of international musical events. Um, Singapore has come a long way. I have to say, you know, I mean, has come a long way because I remembered a time in the 1980s where in acts going into Singapore has very strict. They have to observe very strict rules. No long uh, hair. If I'm yeah, if I yeah the like the long hair. I remembered Sadao Watanabe. You know this. Uh, Japanese jazz, uh, I think, yeah, it is, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, he has these long hair and was required to, you know, you need to cut your hair before you're allowed to go into Singapore. So back then it was different, right? So, but now... Uh, yeah, the Lee Kuan Yew era, right? Yeah, and now it's the, <laughs> it's now the event center, right? It's the event center of Southeast Asia. So, but, you know, I, I, I know this is, uh, I don't think it really has any implications to to uh, uh, to ASEAN relations as such, because you know if you think of it, uh, it's business. It's pure business. Mm. It's the fact mm. that it's the fact that a country has that ability. It has the infrastructure, and this is an industrial policy at its best. Mm. It's it goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? At the end of the day, you know, values doesn't sell in Southeast Asia. No matter yeah. no matter who you're talking to, which government you're talking to, which politician you're talking to, values values doesn't stick. You know, if you're going to talk about yeah. shared, shared values, you know, sh- liberal values, demo- democratic values and all that, no one's going to pay attention in Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, it's all about, you know, surviving, making your money and, and you know. Yeah, but, but, but uh, just as a, a small corrective, there is shared values in oh, Southeast sorry. Asia. Asian values. Yeah, which is to make a lot of money. <laughs> money. Prosperity. <laughs> Profit. <laughs> Profit. Shared value of maximization of profit <laughs> and minimization of cost. <laughs> so, so on that point, which it also means that there's no shared authoritarian values necessarily, right? No, I don't think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, what 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 is shared in Southeast Asia is dynastic politics mm. and family politics. You know, keeping everything in the family. You know, and and if you if you're an outsider, that's okay. You can always build your own family. Uh, uh, Dynasty, because you know, because if you if you think of what Jokowi did, it's really n- not undif- not different from what Marcos did. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, because Marcus Mark before before Marcus Senior, Marcus is not a power yeah. player. You know, the Romaldis clan, you know, is not a power player. You know, so so there you go. So in any case, uh, yeah, go ahead. The running joke right now is. With the Jokowi behaving like this, we've come full scale to the Philippinization of Indonesian politics. Philippinization <laughs> <laughs> of Indonesian Copying politics. the strategies of Filipino politicians, sustain power. <laughs> yeah, you have to write about that. You have to write about that, June. Anyway, hey, thank you guys for uh, for uh, this uh, very informative uh, discussion about Indonesian politics and and very informative discussion about the business deals that Singapore does uh, by a prime example of a capitalist developmental state or another way in a comparative political economy is entrepreneurial state as they as it is called so uh without further ado i uh thank you again to all our listeners for tuning in and for supporting us on this uh views from down under and we Hope that you enjoyed uh, listening to us uh, as much as we enjoy coming together and chit-chatting. Thank you very much and have a good day. Mm-hmm.